The great lesson of these two chapters is that God is infinitely worthy to sit on the universe's throne and to judge its treasonous rebellion against him, and he will delegate that right to the only one who is worthy, his only son. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Who is the proper and rightful owner of the universe? Is there a dispute about who that is? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of a series titled, He is Worthy. We're learning that the great lesson of Revelation chapters four and five is that God the Father is infinitely just, righteous, and altogether worthy to sit in heaven's throne room, judging sinful man's treasonous rebellion against him. And he will delegate that right to the only one who is worthy, God the Son, Christ Jesus himself. And as you'll discover today, these chapters are a prelude to the coming judgments that God will ultimately begin to unleash on the earth. But on what basis, to what degree, in what form, and perhaps making it very personal, how should they impact the manner in which you live your life today? Keep those questions in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through this amazing book that comes at the end of God's revelation to us. You know, we live in a world that is filled with competing ownership rights. It happens in small individual levels. It happens in cities. It happens between individuals who are trying to draw the boundaries in different places. It also happens at a national level. We've all read in the news about what Russia is attempting to do in asserting itself and saying that many of those lands that were lost in the breakup of the Soviet Union actually belong to them and they want to begin to flex their muscles and assert their rights to regain them. China is claiming there are islands there that are theirs and even islands that they've created in the middle of the, of the ocean, those are theirs as well. We see it, of course, in the Middle East as there is constant battling and war over the right to own the land. We raise our eyes to a much bigger struggle, not a struggle over the property lines between individuals, not a struggle over the the competition between nations, but rather tonight we look at the proper and rightful owner of the universe. And there is, in fact, dispute about that. No rightful dispute, but there's dispute, and we're going to see that as we begin to work our way through. Now, just to remind you of where we are, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation really begin the heart of this book. The great lesson of these two chapters is that God is infinitely worthy to sit on the universe's throne and to judge its treasonous rebellion against him, and he will delegate that right to the only one who is worthy, his only son. These two chapters are a prelude. They're a prelude to the judgments that God will begin to unleash on the earth beginning in chapter six and throughout that period we call the tribulation. These heavenly events in chapters four and five to some extent describe the circumstances 
that are ongoing in heaven, but these chapters specifically occur just before the seven-year tribulation occurs on the earth because there is a circumstance we come to tonight in chapter 5 that is unique to the end of the age. We've examined chapter 4, and I entitled it, The Scene in Heaven, The Father in the Throne. And there we saw Christ's invitation to John to come up and to see God's throne, and he saw, he saw the throne of God, he saw the person of God, and then we last time looked at all of the magnificent, the magnificent setting around God's throne, and then the worship that was a part of that as well. Tonight we come to the central event in this vision, and I want us to read it together, Revelation chapter 5. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. Let's read the whole chapter, although I just warn you, there's no way we're getting through all of this tonight. But let's begin. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. It's impossible for us to fully capture the majesty of this scene John has done his best under inspiration to describe it to us, and I want us to begin to work our way through it. In this chapter, John's attention turns from the scene in heaven to the search in heaven, the lamb and the book. We're still in the throne room described in chapter 4 that we looked at in detail, but, but the focus of chapter 5 turns away from all of those things to a remarkable book and an amazing person. 
Several times in this chapter, we read, I saw, verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 11, as John reminds us that he is an eyewitness of these things, but also with that expression, he turns our attention to focus on something else that he's seeing. In this great drama as it unfolds, John's gaze and ours is really captured by three great sights, and I want us to look at them together. The first sight that his attention is captured by is the book with seven seals. The book with seven seals. John ended chapter 4 by directing our attention to the worship that surrounds the throne of God, and that worship focused on God as creator. As chapter 5 begins, John looks again at the one sitting on the throne, and as he looks at God, his eyes land on the Father's mysterious book in verse 1. Let's look at this book. This book becomes the centerpiece of the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, he begins with its description. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Now, remember, God is spirit and doesn't have a body like ours. So when he's described here as having a right hand, as sitting on a throne, it's an anthropomorphism. That is, Scripture is describing God in human terms in order to help us understand something that's true about him. So when this book is pictured as being in God's right hand, the point is this, whatever this book is, It's his. It's his possession. It's his by right. Literally, the the Greek text says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne. God is pictured sitting on his throne with an open palm, and something is lying on that open right hand, and verse 1 says it's a book. It's as if he's waiting for the right person to come and take it from him. Now, immediately, let me just mention that the word book is a bit deceiving. When we hear that word, what comes to our minds are the books that, that are on the shelves in our homes. That book didn't really come into popularity until the second century A.D. In fact, you may not know this, but do you know where the books that you have in your library, where books like that came from? Christians invented them. Christians invented them at the end of the first century A.D., and they became very popular in the second century. And the reason for that was because before that, there had only been scrolls. But in the early church, as the people of God gathered, as we gather here today, and as pastors sought to teach them the Scripture, and as members like you sought to understand the Scriptures, they became frustrated with scrolls. Can you imagine you, you come tonight and you, you bring your scroll of Revelation. And I say, turn to, turn to the account, not chapter 5, there were no chapters. I say, turn to the account of the, the scene in heaven. And you're sitting there scrolling, you're scroll, trying to catch up. And then I say, okay, now open your scroll of Isaiah and let me show you. And you're bringing out Isaiah. and you're, You can understand why this was not tenable. And so out of a desire to find their place more quickly and to seriously study the Scripture, Christians invented books. And here's how it went. They simply took a scroll and they cut it into sections, equal sections, and then they glued it back to back and then they stitched the edges. That's how books began. That's why you have books in your house, because Christians like us wanted to study God's Word. Now, when John wrote at the end of the 
first century, especially since he was writing, remember, from Patmos, where he's been exiled, it's likely that he did not write on the new technology, but rather on a scroll. And what he saw in the hand of God here is almost certainly a scroll. Now, in the ancient world, scrolls were made in one of two ways. First of all, there were parchment scrolls, sections of animal skins that were cut into equal parts, sheep or goat usually, and then those skins that had been prepared were sewn together. These were more expensive. They were often reserved for official documents for wealthy people. But in the first century, by far, the most common writing material, and it had been for 3,000 years out of, out of Egypt, was made of papyrus. The papyrus reed grew in those days by the banks of the Nile in Egypt, not so much anymore. It was harvested, and you can see on the slide this all pictured. It was harvested, cut into long, thin strips, and then two sets of strips were soaked with water, glued to each other at 90-degree angles, pressed together, and then allowed to dry. And then often they would be smoothed with a pumice stone or something like that. And the, the result, frankly, was something not unlike the paper you and I write on. Scrolls were made by joining dried sections together. Now, this was likely a scroll because, as I said, codexes, like we know, weren't invented until the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. And this scroll is described as having writing inside and on the back. And inside best describes the inside of a scroll before it's unrolled. That's how that word is most often used. So here sitting on the right hand the open right hand of God was a scroll, and it's a scroll of unparalleled importance. Verse 1 goes on to say, it was a book written inside and on the back, literally that had been written. That expression was often used in Greek to stress that the document's authority was still in force. Usually, only one side of a papyrus scroll was written on, and that was the inside that was the side where the reeds ran horizontally because you can imagine writing across vertical reeds. You're, you know, it's a little hard. You get to every crack and every crevice and, and your letters are messed up. But if you wrote in, in line, the long line with the flow of the reed, then that went a lot better. So most scrolls were only written on one side. But this scroll was not only written on the inside, but also had writing on the outside. And we'll talk about why that was true in just a moment. Notice verse 1 goes on to say, and it was sealed up with seven seals. A seal was just a unique impression made on either clay or wax. You would take a, a ball of clay or wax, put it at the edge of the document, and then you would make a unique impression on that. That impression was usually made by a ring or, in many cases, a roll that you carried with you. It contained a distinctive mark, your mark, that was tied solely to you. Now, a scroll was sealed for two reasons, to keep its contents private. I think of Isaiah chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it's sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. So it's something sealed up so that its contents are private. But you also sealed a document like this so that only the right person, the authorized person, opened it. And this scroll, as we'll learn, was sealed for both of those reasons. Until John was allowed to see this unfold in his vision, the things that we discover were hidden in the secret counsels of God. 
Now, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. That's not too uncommon in the ancient world. To be considered genuine, for example, a Roman will had to be sealed with seven seals indicating that it had been attested to by seven witnesses. That was what was required for a will. By the way, that was true of the wills of the Roman emperors Augustus, Vespasian, and their successors. All of their wills were sealed with seven seals. Now, these seven seals would have been attached either on the edge of the scroll, so picture the the elongated scroll on the edge of the scroll at intervals so that when you broke each seal, you could read a little more of the document. That's one possibility. I think in light of what we read here, more likely the entire scroll was rolled up and the seven seals were all placed along the final straight edge of the, the scroll. The fact that this document has seven seals, you've, we've already talked about the number seven in Revelation, underscores not only its importance, you only put seven seals if this was really an important document, and that it's perfectly sealed, and that is there is nobody but one who has the right to open it, only the person qualified. So that's the description of the scroll, but that raises the really important question, and that is its meaning. What is this scroll? Now, there's been a lot of debate about its contents. It's interesting, as the book of Revelation unfolds, we're told what happens when each of the seals are broken, but we're never told what's written inside this scroll. And that has, as you might imagine, elicited a great deal of debate about the meaning of this book. Here are some common explanations of the scroll in Revelation 5. Some say it's the new covenant. Some say, no, it's, it's the Old Testament, especially the Torah. Others say, no, it's the Lamb's book of life. Others say, no, it's, it's just like the Roman wills we talked about. It's a will or testament that contains the inheritance God intends to give Christ and His people. Others say, no, it's really a scroll that contains God's entire redemptive plan. And if you open commentaries, you'll find all of those. Now, it seems to me there's a problem with all five of those views, two problems, in fact. One is all five of those perspectives look to the past for the most part when clearly the scroll and its seals point to the future. The other problem is that, and this is a problem with all of them, they focus primarily on the positive when what unfolds in the rest of this book is primarily judgment. I think there are two other views that are more likely. The sixth view is that it's a description of the judgments God intends to unleash on the world during the tribulation. The seven seals are a series of seven horrific judgments that God will pour out on this planet. And the seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains seven bowls of wrath. So kind of wrapped up in these seven seals are all of the judgments that unfold throughout this book. So clearly the seven seals are connected to the unleashing of God's judgment. So I think this number six here, the description of the judgments God intends to unleash on the world during the tribulation, is part of the answer, but it isn't the complete story because the judgments are specifically tied to the breaking of the seals, not the contents of the scroll. After considering all the options, the evidence has led me and and others before me that the content of the scroll is the title deed to the earth. 
the title deed to the earth. Here's Dr. Thomas. He says, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. Now think about what he just said. You have a scroll and inside of that scroll is the contract, the deed. You roll it up and on the outer edge of it, written on the outside, is a description in brief of the contents of the document so that you know what that document is when you look at it. And again, in the ancient world, you have this sealed document. How do you know what's inside? Well, on the outside, there is a brief description of its contents. He goes on, all kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, release of slaves, contract bills, and bonds. Support also comes from Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling the scroll, listen to this, the Hebrew document most closely resembling the scroll was a title deed. In fact, the clear biblical example of this kind of scroll being a title deed is found in Jeremiah 32. Turn back there with me. Jeremiah 32. Let me set the context for you. It's the last days of the southern kingdom, Judah. It's not too long before Jerusalem fell, and Jeremiah is there, and his cousin, a man named Hanamel, approached Jeremiah and asked Jeremiah to buy his field, a field located in Jeremiah's hometown near Jerusalem. Now, both Jeremiah and his cousin knew that once the Babylonians took over the land of Israel, this field would become worthless. And so, you know, if Jeremiah at this point is just using his business acumen, he says, no way, I'm not buying that field. It's going to be worthless in just, just a few short years. But God commanded Jeremiah to purchase it as a sign, as a sign that the Babylonian captivity would not be permanent and that the land would be worth something again. And as the story unfolds, we encounter an ancient document that is clearly a title deed. Look at verse 9, Jeremiah 32, 9. I bought the field, which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of a series titled, He is Worthy. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, hearing that God will pour out judgment for sin is hard for many people to hear, but necessary, isn't it? 
That's right, Bill, because ultimately the judgment of God is based on the character of God, a quality in him we call his justice. God's justice means that he can't simply wave his hand and forgive sin. He has to punish sin. It is his nature, and as a just judge, he's required to do so. That means that every sin that's ever been committed will be punished, will be judged. Either I will be judged for it forever in eternity, or Christ will stand in my place and be judged for it if I trust in him, if I repent and believe in him. Those are the options, and this is the beauty of the gospel, that on the cross, God credited my sin to Christ, and for those dark hours, treated Christ as if he had committed every single one of my sins. Christ got the justice I deserve, and I get the forgiveness that he earned. That's the gospel, and that's our hope when we think about the judgment of God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.